We need to talk about what's happening in Texas. The governor is trying to take away vital health care for transgender kids and labeling it as child abuse. Giving gender affirming care to transgender children is medically necessary and supports their health and well-being. Did you know in many states you can get certain types of health care without your parents being there or ever finding out about it? It's today's Daily Doctor Facts. To figure out if you can get care sans parentals, go to your state health department website and find the laws related to teen health, consent, and confidentiality. Puberty is an exciting and confusing time for teens and parents. Along with all the physical changes that happen during puberty, it is also a time of identity formation. It's pretty common for adolescents to try on different identities as they go through this period of time. Some parents will have to adapt to their child revealing more personal information to them, like the fact that they have a gender identity that does not match their assigned sex at birth. When babies are born, we label them as boy or girl based on the external genital anatomy we see. In truth, this is actually their biologic sex and does not always match their gender identity. People may identify as the opposite gender, somewhere in between, both genders, or no gender at all. Gender is separate from biological sex and it is actually the innate sense of who we are. People along the gender spectrum may understand this about themselves from a very young age or may not disclose this information until their teenage years, or even in some cases later in life. Phalloplasty is a procedure to basically create a penis or a phallus for an individual who was born biological female and who seeks transition to a male gender. The procedure is done with plastic surgeons and urologists. The urologists manipulate the tissues in the surrounding area to lengthen the urethra. A new scrotum is created and uh, some of the anatomical parts of uh, the female anatomy are removed. The plastic surgeons are in charge of creating a new tissue that will ultimately meet the lengthened urethra and the additional tissue that's been moved to uh, create uh, the uh, neophallus. We typically utilize tissue from elsewhere for example, the forearm or the thigh is used. The plastic surgeons are also responsible for uh, providing sensation by doing the nerve coaptation so that the new phallus will have sensation and also responsible for reestablishing the blood supply and also to shape it in a way that appears more um, physiologically and anatomically uh, like a natural one. So what does gender-affirming care for these transgender youth actually look like? As I mentioned before, it's really highly individualized for the person, but generally you can expect a transgender kid to socially transition first. So what does this mean? It means that they might choose to be called by a different name or go by different pronouns. Example would be using he, him instead of she, hers. And then also they might choose to change the way they dress or cut or grow out their hair or style it differently. When a child hits puberty, puberty blockers can be started. This type of medication is completely reversible and has a lot of different benefits for the transgender patient and their family. First of all, it stops a child from going through a puberty that may be distressing for them. For example, a child who was assigned female at birth but identifies as male might be distressed to learn that they start to develop breasts. So basically what puberty blockers do is they simply halt puberty. They're not going to have any masculizing effects or feminizing effects. 
Secondly, puberty blockers give families and children more time to decide the appropriate treatment for them. It gives time for children to not have to make this decision at, you know, 10 years old and allows them to maybe make the decisions more at 14, 15 years old. It allows time for the family to learn about all the different treatment options and create a plan over many years that might work out better for them. And lastly, puberty blockers can help the trans patient going forward. It can help reduce unnecessary medical interventions. For example, if a child, again, who might be assigned female at birth, goes through an undesired puberty and, let's say, develops breasts, then down the road they might need surgical intervention if they wish to have top surgery, reconstructive surgery, to um, rid themselves of the breast, get a flat chest. So by preventing an incorrect puberty from occurring, you are stopping any development of things that you might want to reverse later as a transgender patient. We're talking about gender and sexuality, so thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me, Katie. Great. And we're going to get right into some uh, questions and definitions and pronouns and everything. So I wanted to first ask you to give me some background. Remind me about the development of gender identity and sexuality, and, and what age do children typically know their own gender and then also sexuality? Great question. So. What we know from the literature around childhood development is that uh, gender identity development really starts to take hold between ages three and five years old. And some people feel like that's really early, mm -hmm. um, but it's right when the child's brain is coming together and understanding how, how relationships work, how people fit together, and how they fit into the world. Mm -hmm. So between three and five, there's a lot of language development as well. And that helps young people to be cued into their gender, what gender expectations are in their family, what gender expectations are in maybe their daycare or their churches or their communities. And hearing that language around, yes, Janie, you're a girl. Yes, girls play with dolls. Or Joey, put down that doll. Only girls play with dolls. Right. All of that language that happens so much between three and five years old is also what really solidifies a child's internal understanding of their gender identity. Yeah. What we talk about is, does the child feel like it's a fit? Mm -hmm. The cues, the expectations, the language around how they feel in the world, or is it not a fit? Mm -hmm. So for a transgender child, it doesn't feel like a fit to be rewarded for girl things when Janie actually feels like a boy right. and vice versa. Right. I'm a clinical psychologist by training and I am the director of the L Gender Program, which is an interdisciplinary program working with gender expansive individuals, three to 25, and their families. We um, help individuals who are questioning their gender identity or who identify as transgender or non-binary. We help them with their gender journey, um, thinking through that, thinking through the risks and the benefits of uh, medical intervention, uh, starting medical intervention, um, and also building supports around them. And I love what I do, so it's really, really wonderful to to be working in this field and to be working with individuals who are gender diverse and gaining their support and helping them on their gender journeys. Ultimately, this is to ensure that your child is in a good place socially and emotionally to embark on their medical transition, including any transition goals. This comes in the form of communication or a letter from their therapist that meets standards provided by WPATH, the World Professional Association for Transgender Health. Whether you're seeing a social worker at Phoenix Children's or elsewhere, plan on regular mental health check-ins with someone from our team. Think of it in the same way you would a medical visit. It's essential to your overall health and well-being. 
With that in mind, I'd like you to hear from a patient of mine, Rue, and her father, RC. Hi, my name is Rue. I use she, her pronouns. Um, I started transitioning when I was 12. I began my care at Phoenix Children's Hospital probably about a year or a year and a half ago. Uh, it looks like it's, it's a lot of fun. My time with Giselle, we just talk and laugh and play games. I feel like I've just become much more comfortable in my body and much more confident. Thank you, Isabel. Hi, my name is Priya Dar. I'm one of the doctors at the Center for Adolescent and Young Adult Health here at the Children's Hospital of Pittsburgh. I wanted to talk to you guys today a little bit about puberty blockers. Puberty blockers are basically a medication that says, hey, let's just put a pause on puberty. Um, and that can be really beneficial for younger kids who have start, already started the puberty process who either might um, go through a lot of psychological distress as they go through puberty if they're uh, struggling with gender dysphoria, or for somebody who's saying, hey, I'm not really sure if I feel comfortable in my body or, or what gender I truly identify with. Gender-affirming hysterectomy is very similar to most hysterectomies that occur. A hysterectomy itself is the removal of the uterus, the cervix, which is the opening of the uterus, and the fallopian tubes, which are attached to the sides of the uterus. Some gender-affirming hysterectomies will also include the removal of the ovaries, but that's technically a separate procedure called a bilateral oophorectomy. And not every gender-affirming hysterectomy includes that, and people who are getting gender-affirming hysterectomies do not have to have their ovaries removed. A child will often know that they are transgender from the moment that they have any ability to express themselves, and parents will often tell us this. We have parents who tell us that their kids, they knew from the minute they were born practically, and actions like refusing to get a haircut or standing to urinate, trying to stand to urinate, refusing to stand to urinate, trying on siblings' clothing, uh, playing with the quote opposite gender toys, things like that. There is more and more a group of adolescents that we are seeing that really are coming to the realization that they might be trans or gender diverse a little bit later on in their life. So what we're seeing from them is that they always sort of knew something was maybe off and didn't have the understanding to know that they might be trans or have a different gender identity than the one they had been assigned. So that is a, a growing population that, they are, that we are seeing and that's being recognized as being trans and able to be treated. So, with hormones, um, the mental health piece kind of ties into that because we're able to give two letters, either for hormones or for surgery, readiness, things like that. And we delve deeper into it with our amazing team from UCI Gender Diversity Program. So, some of the folks from the UCI Gender Diversity Program are Ray Cervantes, who goes over the, the insurance part, Jeff Vu, who's a nurse practitioner. Dr. Hunt, Dr. Lynn Hunt, who's a pediatrician. We have Abigail, Catherine, and Caroline as well, who are med students who have been incredible and teach amazing information about hormones. So the hormone section, we talk about estrogen, we talk about um, testosterone, we talk about blockers, we talk about um, stopping puberty for our youth, ways in order to navigate that, what hormones will do, what they won't do, the timelines and things of that nature. Really excited. Folks, my name is Miranda. I use she, her pronouns, and I'm a licensed professional counselor and sex therapist in Erie, Pennsylvania. And today I want to talk about 
minor attracted persons. And I want to talk about minor attracted persons because they are probably the most vilified population of folks in our culture. And most folks are making incorrect assumptions about them without actually knowing much about them. And those assumptions create harm for an already marginalized population. You may have noticed that I'm using the term minor attracted persons, sometimes abbreviated to MAPS, instead of the more commonly used term pedophile. And I'm doing this because the term pedophile has moved from being a diagnostic label to being a judgmental, hurtful insult that we hurl at people in order to harm them or slander them. I also prefer person-first language that recognizes that any label we might apply to a person is only part of who they are and doesn't represent everything that they are. We are all people first with many different facets or parts of ourselves, and this includes folks who are attracted to minors. So to start with, let's talk about what a minor attracted person is or who they are. This term simply means that the person has an enduring sexual or romantic attraction to minors. They've not chosen this attraction, just as the rest of us have not chosen whatever our attraction is. You don't get to choose to be heterosexual or to be gay or, or whatever you are, and you don't get to choose to be a minor attracted person. Some minor attracted persons are attracted to a specific age range of minors, while some are not. And some minor attracted persons are exclusively attracted to minors and are not attracted to adults at all. Some minor attracted persons are also attracted to adults. And the ways in which states intervene with parental authority. So after all, for most of the history of liberal democracies, society, uh, liberal democratic societies, parents psychologically harming their children wasn't considered a matter for the state to deal with at all. There are large gaps then in appropriate measures to protect children not of age to protect themselves. In the United Kingdom, for instance, new Cinderella legislation um, was recently ratified, and this is aimed at protecting emotionally abused children and punishing their perpetrators. Parliament member Robert Buckland had this to say about the legislation. Our criminal law has never reflected the full range of emotional suffering experienced by children who are abused by their parents or caretakers. The sad truth is that until now, the wicked stepmother would have gotten away scot-free. So Buckland's statement uh, well exemplifies the legal gap when it comes to protecting children from non-physical forms of abuse. So whether the parents fully understand it or not, transgender children going through puberty of their own gender is harmful in this special way. So as we've seen, refusing puberty blocking treatment prevents immediate and intense psychological harm. And second, it causes lasting and irreversible physical harm. So we can compare the parents of transgender children opposed to um, physician-recommended treatment to naturalist parents, so parents who misuse traditional or mistrust uh, traditional Western medicine. Regardless of whether these parents have good intentions, these children are often at risk of harm. So in various cases, the courts have ruled that naturalist parents are required to treat their children according to traditional principles of Western medicine. 
Um, not only that, but they're criminally liable if they don't do so. So arguably a similar, similar case could be made with the parents of transgender children. We see patients ages four to 25. So basically as young as patients start to explore gender identity, we might be supporting them from a behavioral health standpoint um, and all the way into young adulthood and when they're ready to launch into adult healthcare. So the services we provide in terms of clinical services, we have multidisciplinary medical and behavioral health services. And so um, we, we often meet with new patients in a multidisciplinary visit where they'll meet both a medical and a behavioral health provider at the same time. Um, our medical services are adolescent medicine, like myself and a few of our other providers. And then we also have endocrinology who comes and works in the gender development program too. Um, the services, the medical services we provide range from um, pubertal assessments um, to pubertal suppression. So for patients who are in early puberty um, and having distress because of their body developing in an unwanted um, uh, phenotype, gender phenotype, um, we can suppress puberty so that we can avoid unwanted pubertal changes. Um, we also provide menstrual suppression for patients who have menses and have dysphoria with that. Um, and then gender affirming hormones for patients who want to, um, you know, who have carefully considered and have supported their family to pursue a gender transition. We um, prescribe and, and manage um, gender affirming hormones. In terms of surgical services within Lurie Children's, we work with our surgeons in general surgery who do implants for puberty blockers like Suprelin and Vantis. And then we work with plastic surgery who does um, gender affirming chest surgery, which is typically mastectomy. Um, we also work with Lurie Children's speech therapy department who provides speech and voice therapy to trans youth who are looking to have a voice and communication style that's gonna be more true to their authentic selves. Um, and then we work with um, the Department of Surgery here as well as the REI department over at Northwestern um, who um, collaboratively work, run, run and, and the urology department at Northwestern who collaboratively run the fertility preservation program. Uh, because as you may know, the impact of gender affirming hormones on fertility is, is still understudied and um, not completely known. And so all patients who are pursuing gender affirming hormone therapy are offered um, the opportunity to preserve fertility before they begin that process. You work with trans kids and teens, and I would love for you to share with people um, like a little window into what the process is like when a family comes to you. Um, you know, when kids realize they're trans, like what are they looking for when they meet with you? Is this a risky process for a young person? Yeah, I mean, I mean, the, the answer to that is largely um, no and yes, you know, so there are things that we do not know about the process, but, you know, these are medical interventions that have been used for a long time now. They've been done quite safely. The medical interventions themselves are not rocket science. I mean, these are medications that we've used in other conditions for many years that have a really strong evidence base. And so I really want to be clear that I believe these medicines can, that can and are used safely. You know, I know for a fact that the teams that are out there that are doing this work do it with a lot of care and thought and precision. And so, yes, I mean, there is there is not a full range of evidence to support the treatments that we're using. But there is a lot of anecdotal evidence to support it. And, and the safety data that's coming out really suggests that these treatments can be used uh, both safe, safely and appropriately. Thank you for calling National Hospital. Your call may be recorded for quality assurance.
I was calling uh, for information about gender-affirming hysterectomies. Okay, so gender-affirming hysterectomy. I've been in touch with quite a few hospitals, um, and a lot of them, well, they said they won't do it for, for my 16-year-old, um, and then I was told that this hospital might, and I also saw it on your website. Um, so if you guys do... Uh, do it for a 16 year old I'll, I would be happy for you know to come for a consultation or whatever it takes let me get you over to the operator and I hate to transfer you I just I just need to want to know if if you guys do service that age you know before obviously before coming you know coming all the way for an in-person consult and going through all the paperwork well, and everything. Yeah, it depends. And each department is different. Some some departments cut off at 18. How old, how old is your patient? 16. Okay. All right. So they're in the clear. I'll email the, um, Dr. Call and see what we can do. Right. In the meantime, if you still want me to transfer you, I can still transfer you to surgery. Hi, I was calling um, because I'm looking for information about the gender-affirming hysterectomies that you guys offer. Am I in the right place? Um, okay. Yes. Um, this is the clinic. Did you want to make an appointment? So I was just wondering, I've, I've contacted quite a few hospitals already. Um, it seems like it's difficult to find one that does the operation um, for my 16-year-old. And I was told that you guys do do that. Um, so... If you do it for 16-year-olds, then yes, I'd love to schedule um, an appointment, a consultation, whatever you need. If, if you don't mind me asking, um, what is your child gender changing to? So I can point you to the right direction. Yeah, well, he transitioned to a male. You know, he already had the top surgery, um, and now we're looking for the hysterectomy. Okay, beautiful. So I'm going to transfer you to the GYN nurse line. One of the nurses will give you a call to give you more information and to let you know the steps and the protocol that they do for that, okay? Okay. So so they do so they would do it um for at for that age? Yes. Okay, great. Is it a common procedure that you guys do for for that age? Yes, um, we have um, all different type of age groups that comes in for that. For the gender, for the hysterectomy. Yes, ma'am. Okay, just out of curiosity, do you know like what's the youngest age you would do it on? I'm not sure, but I have seen younger kids, and I'm not, you know, due to hip, I'm not allowed to say that, but I have <laughs> seen younger kids like, younger than your child's age. Get the gender affirming hysterectomy surgery. Yes. Okay. Yes. Um, okay. I really appreciate your help. So we brought you this saga of libs of TikTok, one of the most informative accounts on Twitter. And because it is so informative, it keeps getting banned. Libs of TikTok just proved that physicians are, in fact, castrating young people, minors, for no legitimate purpose whatsoever. Libs of TikTok reported, recorded this call with Children's National Hospital, for example, in Washington, D.C., I just, I just need to want to know if, if you guys do service that age, you know, before obviously, before coming, you know, coming all the way for an in-person consult and going through all the paperwork well, and everything. Yeah, it depends. And each department is different. Some, some departments cut off at 18. How old, how old is your patient? 16. 
Okay. All right. So they're in the clear. So so they do. So they would do it um, for at the, for that age. Yes. Okay. Great. Is it a common procedure that you guys do for for that age? Yes. Um. We have um all different type of age groups that comes in for that. For the gender for the hysterectomy. Yes, ma'am. Okay. Just out of curiosity, do you know like what's the youngest age you would do it on? I'm not sure, but I have seen younger kids, and I'm not, you know, beat a hip. I'm not allowed to say that, but mm -hmm. I have seen younger kids, like younger than your child's age. Get the gender affirming hysterectomy surgery. Yes. Yeah, castrating kids. They admitted it flat out. Now Children's Hospital is denying it, pretending it's not true. Today, Vice.com which rides to the rescue of anyone in power who's been embarrassed, whether it's the CIA or the State Department or the Biden administration or Google, or in this case, the medical establishment, went after libs of TikTok. One person, Vice, like a billion dollars in venture funding. And they're claiming that libs of TikTok is, quote, helping the Kremlin, the Kremlin, boost anti-LGBT disinformation. And then the Washington Post, owned by the richest man in the world, accused libs of TikTok of lying. And then NPR, which is funded by your tax dollars, and spends all of its time attacking you and your family, for whom they have pure contempt, is pushing to ban libs of TikTok. And then shortly after that, not surprisingly, Twitter obeyed and suspended libs of TikTok, alleging hateful conduct. So libs of TikTok creator Haya Rachik joins us tonight to explain what this is about. Um, I, I sure appreciate your, your coming on. Uh, tell us how they construed hateful conduct from your reporting. How was that hateful, did they say? Hi, Tucker. No, they did not say. They purposely left it, you know, for the imagination. Um, but I can only imagine that reporting on doing journalism and reporting on something that they don't approve of is, is hateful. That's what they view as hateful now. So you're committing actual journalism, bringing to light facts and allowing people to assess what they think of those facts. That's what journalism is. And then the Washington Post, NPR, and the, the loathsome overfunded website, Vice, decide you must be censored for this? D does this seem like an yes. inversion of the way things should be? Yes, it's, it, it's really scary um, when you see journalists and media calling for another independent journalist to be completely silent. They don't just want me banned. They want me demonetized. They want me silenced. They want me off the Internet forever for simply doing a little bit of investigative work, which is what they should be doing, um, and, and, and exposing the Children's National Hospital. Do you recognize, obviously, the, the totalitarian impulses behind what these media organizations are doing, I assume? Yes, um, and the fact that big tech is working with them and just complies, and these media companies, they're able to call on big tech to do their doing and to suspend me like that. Um, it is really scary. Yeah. N never comply, never obey, never stop telling the truth. Hi, Rachel. Thank you for what you do. Creative libs of TikTok. More news. <laughs>